Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is John Robb. John is a returning guest. He's been on the show a bunch of times. I can't even count how many. He's one of our go-to folks on military, intelligence, and strategic stuff. Those who want to follow John and his thinking, learn more about him, check him out on Patreon. John Robb at Patreon. I've been a subscriber since he put the thing up. Been well worth the $5 a month or whatever it is I pay him. So anyway, welcome back, John. Oh, thank you, Jim. Always good to chat. This is the fifth Jim Rutt Show episode about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. As in our other episodes, we'll try to step back and maybe get above the blow-by-blow details that the news and social media are full of and look instead at some of the higher-level dynamics of the situation. Uh, One thing that strikes me about the kind of the highest-level dynamics of the situation is if we look at the history of war, uh, while occasionally a war is fought to the bitter end, uh, World War II, the U.S. Civil War, etc., most wars are settled. And as I look at where we are, uh, we may be approaching the range of times when settlement makes sense, but as we'll talk about later, maybe we aren't. Uh, And that is uh, in labor negotiations, which I think are a very interesting kind of game theoretical, similar dynamic. Uh, Typically, you, you can get to settlement in a labor strike, a union strike, when both sides realize they can both give and absorb punishment for a while and that neither side sees a major victory in sight, or certainly not an easy major victory. You know, management sees unions not going to accept their offer, you know, their first offer. Uh, The union realizes the company isn't going to give them what they want. Uh, And at that point uh, is when rational actors uh, start to settle. Uh, So what do you think about that? Do you think we're approaching the zone where settlement would make sense for a rational actor? And then maybe your thoughts on whether we're dealing with rational actors. Yeah, I think so. But there are dynamics in place that are pulling these rational actors back from the compromise that would end the conflict. And um, I mean, we have Putin obviously understands that he overstepped. He, he screwed up with this move. But, you know, he's in it up to his eyeballs right now. And uh, he has internal dissent rising and he has uh kind of a reputation for the, the Russian nation to protect. And he, he has to ward off encroachment from the West. So those are all factors coming into his thinking. Uh, he needs a kind of a maximalist, from his perspective, uh, settlement conclusion. Uh, and uh, that that would be uh, you know more towards a, a Ukrainian neutrality uh, and no joining of NATO or EU. And then the Ukrainians, on the other hand, uh, they don't want any restrictions like that. In fact, they would want back some of the lost territory, Crimea, Donbass. And, and um, they're also getting pressure from the EU and NATO countries and, and the US uh, who are completely behind them and pushing for maximalist goals, um, a complete rollback of Russia. Yeah. Question. Why would the Russians be opposed to Ukraine joining the EU? I mean, it's not a military alliance. 
it has a mutual defense function. Oh, very weak one, trivial one. If you can't beat the uh, EU rapid reaction force, then you might as well just uh, you know fold your cards, right? Oh yeah, but I mean, if you're if you use the EU uh, as a mechanism for actually instigating conflict, it can draw in NATO. So you, okay. you end up you, you have that back door, and then also um, it's an economic and cultural change that's right on their doorstep that will leak into uh, in, into Russia, mostly kind of an anti uh, fossil fuel viewpoint. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the measures that they would try to put in place in terms of uh, how the society is run in Ukraine, if they join the EU, would change the culture in Russia. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it, it, he probably you may be thinking kind of like uh, late Cold War that a prosperous and free Western-oriented Ukraine would be a hell of an example for the Russian people to see, right? Uh, right. And that, he's probably afraid of that. Doesn't want a good example, a functional society right next to him. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and he's he's definitely of the mind that you know Russia was humiliated and and dismembered. You know, as the Soviet Union, you know, was was uh, collapsed, and um, you know there is a there is a certain level of kind of national pride and 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 the need for kind of buffer states uh, to slow down NATO's expansion. I mean, I mean NATO is really just there to contain Russia. <laughs> so you know, and expanding right up to his borders is like okay, it's like the Warsaw Pact expanding right up to America's borders. You know, from that perspective. Of course, the Warsaw Pact came right up to our major allies, right? In fact, uh, divided one of them right in half. Anyway, okay, let's uh, let, we'll come back. We'll talk about some settlements and some things that might push it in one direction or another. But yeah, we're in a position where logically settlements are possible, but I agree with you that currently both sides are pretty far apart. So uh, next, uh, the high-level uh, military situation. Uh, the Institute for the Study of War put out a pretty detailed assessment on March 19th. Uh, where it uh, declared flatly that the Russian offensive has failed and that uh, we are likely to see a violent and uh, costly stalemate situation uh, ensue. You know, I, I would interpret it in Clausewitzian terms is that the friction of war has essentially used up most of the Russian capacity to move forward. And so stalemate is a likely situation. What do you think of that? Yeah, um, the maneuver warfare that Russia initially tried to use um, in Ukraine uh, hasn't worked. It, they got bogged down, and now it's into attrition warfare. You know, destruction of cities. Um, the goal is to destroy so much inside of uh, Ukraine that it forces it to the negotiation table. I mean, that's attrition warfare is basically the destruction of physical capacity to actually oppose. So you destroy city after city after city until. Uh, Ukraine comes in to the negotiating table and says, I'm exhausted. Let's end this. And of course, that didn't work too well in World War II. You know, we pounded Germany flat. We pounded Japan even flatter and uh, did not break their will. Uh, you know, not until we Germans, so we actually uh, you know, stuck the bayonet into the bunker of Berlin did, the, did Germany fall. And not until we landed the nukes on their ass did the Japanese surrender. So, uh, you know, the pounding of uh, cities has not historically been uh, a prescription for winning a war. Well, um, I think World War One is probably a better, you know, analogy for this war, um, both in terms of how it escalated, um, using a network dynamic rather than just a, a bunch of treaties and, and uh, familial relationships between monarchs. And um, 
and also you know how it's bogging down and turning into a kind of a war of exhaustion and and germany certainly you know suffered exhaustion and that's what drove it to the negotiating table in, in world war one um you know pounding a city with artillery works a lot more effectively than than strategic bombing on the whole um and then you follow that up with with you know ground forces you know coming through it um yeah, uh, I I think attrition attrition is a long, drawn out, horrible affair. So you know this is the this is still in its starting phases. And wait till it gets to Kiev. And of course, on uh, one one thing that's interesting about attrition, I looked up the data on what is the what are the balance of forces currently in Ukraine. If say the Russians have about one hundred ninety thousand that they put in, they may have lost twenty thousand effectives already between killed and wounded, maybe slightly more. That's a huge number out of a hundred ninety thousand. And then you look at the other side, uh, the Rush, uh, the Ukrainian military plus its reserves is about 460,000. And so if the reserves have been fully deployed, which I imagine by now they have been, uh, the uh, Ukrainians outnumber the Russians almost three to one. And so right. if it's man for man attrition, uh, the Ukrainians you know, have a lot to give. And further, so far, the loss ratios look like they're skewed heavily against the Russians, which is what you'd expect uh, with the Ukrainian hunker down defensive strategy. Yeah, it, we have no idea what the Ukrainian losses are. I mean, they're not reporting. Uh, the open source networks that we rely upon for data are completely skewed to Russian losses and Russian deployments. And, and there, there's no data coming out on Ukrainian losses. Uh, and they're hiding it for to achieve this kind of effect that you know they're effective at defending. So um, I suspect they probably lost as, at least as much as the Russians. Uh, it, you know, this has been a, a brutal pounding. Um, and they'll lose many more in terms of civilian losses. So uh, expect the Ukrainian losses to be at the end of the day, uh, maybe two to three to one to the Russian losses at the at, by the time this concludes. Yeah, counting civilians, that would certainly that, I would say that's certainly likely to be the case. May not be the case with military though. Though again, to the degree they have a hunker down defense, and the Russians seem to have uh, do not know how to to do mobile maneuver warfare. Not they don't know how to play the air land game the way the West does. Uh, it's going to be mighty expensive for them to uh, capture these cities. Even a uh, you know not that even not really large cities are having a really hard time. How long have they been trying to? Uh, you know, consolidate Mariupol, you know, there's, and still hasn't happened. Right. Uh, and they may have to fight street by street. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be, to be fair though, the, at least in the terms of the, the, the mobile or maneuver portion of this war, I mean, the Ukrainians were clearly prepped for this in terms of having PGMs and, and drones available. Um, this unlike a foe that we've faced in the past, granted, U.S. probably would have been able to compensate for it, uh, but it still makes things slow going when every tree could hide a guy with a with a precision guided munition and that it could take out a tank, uh, or every you know the the sky is flooded with with cheap Chinese drones uh, that can that can drop uh, anti vehicle uh, IEDs and and other weaponry on top of a on your column. Um, so, you know, uh, they clearly didn't put enough forces in. Um, they thought this was going to be a walk in the park, you know, akin to, you know, what, what it was in Crimea and, um, they've been preparing. I mean, the Ukrainians have been preparing and, and this is the cost, you know, you go into a hedgehog with a maneuver force, it's going to bog you down <laughs> and, um, and it's going to slow you down. And, you know, that was the 
opportunity for the Ukrainians to, you know, get their forces mobilized and get all the, the weaponry they needed to, to do more damage to the Russians over the long term. I'm gonna, let's, let's skip ahead here to a, a, another very high level question is uh, when I, uh, I look at the situation here, particularly the unexpectedness, if we go back and read the uh, prognostications of many or most, I would say, of the analysts, uh, they did not expect Ukraine to essentially fight Russia to a stalemate. Uh, and I'm thinking that this might represent one of those historical flips uh, in military technology, where the defense has now come back into, um, you know, uh, power over the offense. Uh, you think it's happened before, like the U.S. Civil War, famously, the invention of the mini ball, which tripled the effective range of the infantry rifle, basically brought the Napoleonic frontal charge to being irrelevant. Unfortunately, the generals didn't know it. They'd all been taught Yamini's analysis of Napoleon at West Point, uh, and they kept doing it again and again. The only general seemed to realize that the military tech had switched was James Longstreet. He uh, never wanted to get involved in a frontal attack. Always let them attack first, then we'll counterattack. And, and it worked for him. Uh, World War One, another example. You know, after the Franco-Prussian War, we saw the uh, Prussians just zip right through, take Paris. World War One, with the machine guns, uh, rapid fire, uh, light field artillery, et cetera, turned into a very different conflict where defense had the advantage until the tank came late in the war. Uh, World War II was mostly a offense-dominated uh, war, as were uh, things like the Gulf War. Uh, but perhaps uh, inexpensive precision-guided missilery, uh, hedgehog strategy, et cetera, et cetera, may have flipped us back to a period where the technology and the tactics favor the defense. What do you think about that? You know, that, that would complete the World War I analogy, right? So that this is a, you know, with attrition, with with the defense being more uh, advanced than, than offense. You know, I, I think though that uh, it, what we're seeing it definitely is a transition point towards, you know, more use of drones, uh, autonomous weapons, uh, smart weapons, uh, and that uh, we're going to see the advance into using those as offensive technologies really, really quickly after this conflict. And the Russians clearly have an, uh, invested in that. Um, I think the Chinese are, certainly will be investing in that. Uh, that should have been the, the, the tip of the spear on this is that using a lot more drones, I mean, swarming the skies over, over the Ukraine, you know, with thousands upon thousands of drones uh, and, and uh, all armed to the teeth, uh, gathering information faster, uh, that would have turned this into a, a, a romp uh, and, and, and for very little in terms of investment. And, you know, I don't think Russia would be at the forefront in terms of advancing that. But, you know, with Chinese help, I think they could. Um, so, well, yeah, there, there was a certain amount of switch. Um, it's more, more due to, I think, the, uh, the sloppiness of Russian planning. Yeah, it's, it was one of the other things I was going to say is uh, this could just be an artifact of the particular matchup. You know, the Ukrainian army. Pretty big relatively to the Russian army, uh, and uh, you know, defensively oriented, fighting on their own turf against a fairly bumbling uh, Russian military. And this defensive dominance might not occur, say, in a uh, U.S. versus uh, Iran situation, for instance. But it might. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, stalemate. I I, th I see it more as a slow grind that Russia thinks it can win over the long term. That it that it just will continue to slowly advance. 
chewing city after city over the course of years. And we're thinking, okay, everything should be done quick. It should be done in weeks. And, and, and here's this thing that just goes and goes and goes and city and casualties mount and Russia keeps on throwing resources at it. New technologies get developed. Um, the Ukrainians pay the, the biggest price because their cities are being destroyed. Their civilians are killed. Their, their soldiers are chewed up because a lot of them are underarmed and underexperienced. Um, and I swear that there are actually a lot more casualties on, on the Ukrainian side that, than we're being led to believe. I mean, sending, sending forward people that just don't have the training or the, or the equipment necessary to, to defend themselves against armored columns. We're only seeing the successes of the, of the attacks on the Russians. Uh, it's very one-sided in terms of the information flow. And we'll talk about that later, how Russia is doing such a bad job on information warfare. So, you know, nonetheless, Russia has underachieved relative to what seemingly every, almost every analyst said. What do you think is about, what do you think that's about? Uh, was it just hubris or is there, are there fundamental problems in the uh, Russian military organization and doctrine? Huh. Well, a lot of people would say that uh, you know Russia really wasn't ever that great a military. I mean, just it was it, it focused on bulk and ability to grind grind out you know wins over the long term, and that um, and their ability to mobilize uh, the entire state when needed. And there's also um, kind of the way that Putin treated the military. It, you know, there's this line of thinking that. Russia is a security state, and the and the biggest threat to that security state is a, is a military coup. In fact, it was one of the early things that almost happened uh, prior to Putin taking power, um, and that uh, they constantly Putin constantly kept the military under his thumb, and that he kind of debased it and, and weakened it, um, and that uh, you know everything from the you know. Russian gangs and criminal networks extorting money from from um, conscripts and 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 uh, lower ranked officials on every Russian base and that being tolerated, um, and then uh, you know constant theft and, and and black market stuff in behind, and then just uh, in general just showing them that they are second tier, you know that they didn't really need a kind of an intellectual culture and and. And the, th the kind of things that would allow you to plan effectively and, and, and do, the, do, do the kind of operation they initially anticipated here. So, uh, yeah, they were. Uh, so you have a kind of a weak culture in the Russian military uh, made weaker by Putin and then um, going, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a security state where no one really wanted to tell Putin the real thing, you know, the real That's truth. Yeah, it's the downside of a closed society, right? Uh, Karl Popper famously wrote in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, that in the, in the long term, open societies should beat closed societies because closed societies aren't operating on accurate information, right? And uh, this seems to be a good example of that. Another, I don't know about the military, but I have read that in the intelligence services, which uh, Putin has arrested some of the top guys in the fifth directorate of the FSB for giving him such bad advice, nepotism is a very serious problem that, you know, our CIA hires the best and the brightest, while the FSB apparently is heavily populated with the, uh, you know, regression to the mean offspring of uh, former FSB officers. Uh, I wonder if that's also true in the military. Yeah, nepotism has always been the kind of a Russian problem from the get-go. I mean, even during the USSR, I mean, 
the analysis of the USSR was run by 5,000 families. And they all lived in the Moscow area. So yeah, it's nom- like- Nomenclatura, they called it, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it, that nepotism has not gone away. It's, it's, it's ingrained in Russian culture and um, it does slow down their- Anyone who tries to challenge it tends to be soon out of power. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you know, one thing that's good news here from all this uh, new information about how feeble this is and thinking about the systematics that might be behind it is the idea of Russia taking on NATO toe to toe is now pretty laughable. You know, if they can't defeat the Ukrainians on their home turf, you know, 100 miles from their border, how the hell are they going to deal with uh, NATO uh, trying to come across Poland or something like that? Uh, so it's yeah. kind of taken the escalation to general war against NATO off the table. Well, yeah, but also NATO of 25 years ago is still in our head. I mean, we don't have <laughs> we don't have that NATO anymore. I mean, that that NATO is like Germans cut, and everybody cut their military budgets to nothing. And so they're about as bad off as, as the Russians at this point. Uh, you know, they might have smaller, high-quality units, but they, they have nothing in bulk. Yeah, but they still have those leopard tanks and they have those cool missiles. I mean, yeah, I don't want to mess with the German. Small. It's not, yeah, it's 1% of the GDP as opposed to 3.5% of ours, but it's only one front. Keep that in mind, too. We're, we're policing the world with 3.5% GDP. All they got to do is help Poland defend its borders, a much more concentrated piece. I, I you know, think even if the U.S. didn't show up in NATO, I bet NATO would still kick their ass. Give it enough time, I, I think, but it's, their militaries are so small. Yeah, it's true. They are small, and they, and they did not uh, distinguish themselves in Afghanistan any. No, and um, it you know it's not really a, you know a militaristic culture in the Europe anymore, uh, and they're you know it's very old. It's like the average age of of Europe is forty one or something like that. Same as Russia. Right. Russia is also forty one, which is very important to know. Uh, both of them are old culture, and Russia is even worse because the only reason Russia is only forty one is because of its very high death rate, particularly for males. Uh, if right. uh, Russia had the longevity of the Western European countries, its uh, average age would be about forty eight, uh, because its population is actually going down. You know, unlike you know the Western European ones are kind of getting ready to go down, but they haven't actually started going down yet. But Russia is actually uh, going down because of the high death rate, particularly for males, and a ridiculously low birth rate. Let's go back up to uh, an earlier topic I wanted to cover, which is, you know, we're sort of in a range where there could be settlement, but the guys seem to be apart. Uh, what are some things in the near term, what I call transition points, that could move people's willingness to settle one way or the other? Uh, you know, one of the, a couple of them I came up with, and I'd love to hear your ideas, is uh, one uh, idea I've seen circulating amongst the strategists is the Russians could uh, could converge from the uh, northeast and the south on Dnipro and cut off uh, Ukrainian eastern forces in front of the Donbass area uh, and then eventually reduce that, uh, that bag and then uh, uh, consolidate their forces, cross the Dnieper, turn north, take Kiev from the south. Kiev from the south. Uh, another one is uh, we're already starting to see some Ukrainian counterattacks, local ones, Kharkiv, Mykilo, Liva, Lyav, Kursan, and uh, Luhansk have all had counterattacks, but they've been local. If those become more general, literally start rolling the uh, Russians back the way the Allies did late in World War One, that would move the needle quite a bit. And, uh, of course, on the other side, one could imagine Belarus coming in on the uh, – uh, side of Russia and coming down the Polish border and cutting off the uh, 
uh, supply lines. And another one is the Russians could finally get their shit together and actually do a pervasive network attack on the both physical and virtual networks uh, that have so far been sustaining Ukraine. So those are, uh, I can think of, of four things that could happen in the relatively short term that might move the needle about negotiation. Do those make sense to you? And do you have some others? Yeah, I, I'm looking at it more as a um, kind of even boil that up. You have the specific kind of operational uh, conditions that you were talking about. Um, that it's really the frame for this for this conflict for me is really over nuclear weapons and nuclear escalation. At least from our perspective, um, it, that's probably the most important thing here. And that uh, what I see as kind of an end game is that either Russia is losing, either through internal loss or uh, operational loss in the in the theater, um, and that it has to withdraw. And that could be because the, the Ukrainians are counterattacking, or more militaries are, are joining from, you know, their talk of Poland and others you know, entering, sending troops into the conflict, that it becomes untenable for them. They're going to lose an army. Um, and that uh, that forces them to, you know, to the, to the negotiating table and basically either, uh, they either give in, which I don't think is going to happen, or they... Uh, escalate the conflict. And then the, um, which is, I think is more likely, or they start winning and Ukraine is forced into the conflict or forced to end. And that, that winning is mostly from my perspective, I don't think that they're going to see the, any big uh, operational maneuvers that could cause you know, losses of huge territory in Ukraine. I do see a slow, steady grind that's going to grind up Ukrainian cities. Um, and that, uh, just the sheer amount of loss, uh, once they start really working on uh, Kiev and other places of that size, uh, is going to drive the, the Ukrainians to the table. And they'll accept that kind of neutrality that Russians are currently offering without Ukraine, without Donbass. Now, I've got a, a hypothesis, which I've been circulating online, uh, which is that there's a constraint on Putin, uh, which I call maximum acceptable atrocity, uh, which is, yeah, he could uh, do a Grozny and literally flatten Kiev, kill everybody in it damn close to. Uh, but if he did, there's a fair chance that public opinion, i.e. outside of elite channels, I mean, the elite channels do not want NATO to go toe-to-toe with the Russians because of the risk of nuclear escalation. But to some degree, they're dependent on popular opinion. There was a time not long ago where three-quarters of Americans uh, polled said they were in favor of a no-fly zone over the Ukraine, which would effectively have been declaring uh, war on Russia. Uh, And uh, there is some level of atrocity uh, which will arouse uh, public opinion and um, hypothesizing such a level of atrocity will arouse public opinion at the West that it will force NATO to intervene. And Putin, being no fool, is aware of this, and so he 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 doesn't know where that level is, maximum acceptable atrocity, but he has to maneuver as if there is such a line. Yeah, um, I think he has to, he has to actually you know, grind these cities up to, in order to force Ukraine to the table. So that's, that, that's the way attrition works. That's the way he has to move forward. The maneuver stuff is not going to work. And so, um, that means, you know, causing civilian casualties, that means causing mass loss of life. And, but the problem is that the U S by calling, you know, Biden calling, uh, Putin a war criminal and, um, already talking in terms of 
you know, war crimes being committed in the past and, and, and you know, from the, the fight so far or is basically escalated beyond that. So, there, I mean, there's really no way to actually talk or negotiate with Putin at this point because he's already designated a war criminal. Um, they, they, this connect is permanent at this point. The pr- sanctions and the kind of disconnection of Russia is permanent at this point uh, with him in power. Um, so I don't think he has anything really to lose. I think maybe the escalation is, is of, of the death through this grinding uh, is actually potentially good for Putin because it may attract conventional forces from other uh, European countries uh, to enter the theater. Um, and that would allow him to say to the rest of Russia, look, this is all about NATO encroachment. They, this was all planned. This is all you know, part of their, you know, they always wanted to come after us. Here, here it is. And um, you know, my, uh, my problem with this whole scenario, the way it's working out, is that if Putin has to withdraw, and you know he say he's suffering in, in internal dissent that he's got to keep m- mooted, and, and he's not going to get these uh, this disconnection lifted, uh, is that he has to think in terms of the long term um, relationship with the West, and that means that he has to turn Ukraine into something that serves as a warning to the West that it, it shouldn't interfere inside of Russia. Um, and that has to make it as bloody and terrible as it possibly can. And it, he, you can do that with convention, uh, conventional forces up to a point. But at the end of the day, you're, if it keeps on going along the way it's going, you're going to have to drop some tactical nukes and say, do not come after Russia, or this will expand into your territories as well. Um, because you know, even if this even this, this conflict ends in Ukraine with a negotiated settlement, um, there's no everyone's going to be talking about regime change in Russia and how we make that happen, and how we start funding groups. And the only way to ward that off, only way to stop the West from doing that, is to demonstrate your willingness to use nukes. And what better place to do that than in the Ukraine if? And, and that may even force the negotiation to conclusion faster. That's a, it's certainly possible. That was going to be our next point. You know, what are the Russian possible escalations? Uh, they see themselves caught in a uh, quicksand pool that they can't win and they can't get out uh, with honor. Uh, they're not willing to settle on the terms Zelensky's willing to settle on. Uh, and so, yeah, they could uh, go to nukes. But what would they nuke? I mean, when I, th- when I think tactically, uh, there isn't any obvious target to nuke, maybe an airfield or something. But, uh, uh, you know, what, how would you use tactical nukes in this kind of situation? Uh, the forces are too close together. Uh, you know, it couldn't be at the front, probably. Uh, it would have to be on a remote uh, a remote target like an airfield or a depot or something. Uh, or the, perhaps more uh, realistically, if if they believe they want to stay under the level of maximum, uh, this might put them over at maximum acceptable atrocities. They could do a large scale chemical attack on a city, you know, in, in the way uh, Saddam Hussein did on one of the cities in uh, Kurdistan, uh, etc. So yeah, uh, I don't see I don't see the the chemical stuff. Uh, I mean, it could be used, but it, it really doesn't shift the needle at all. It just adds to the war crime stuff. Um, I would do the same kind of thing that the US did with Japan is if if I were Putin and putting myself in his mindset is that I would take out some western cities next to the uh, the western border of Ukraine to uh Europe uh mostly those those cities that uh, 
are just far enough from the border that it doesn't bleed in through blast damage, but it their depot and staging points, um, civilian deaths don't matter. It, if they do really, that, it's World War Three, probably. No, well, it, it potentially is, but it's in the war zone. It's not outside of NATO. Uh, it 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 still isn't technically, uh, you know, a world war in that regard. But it's basically a warning to the West: stay out. No, did you? Maybe I misheard you. Did you say uh, for the Russians to nuke uh, cities on the NATO side of the line or on the Ukrainian no. side of the line? On the Ukrainian side, but okay, okay. in the in the western part of Ukraine, which is, is which is anti-Russian, doesn't have a lot of Russian speakers, um, and that are conduits. Any city of any magnitude, anything over a couple hundred thousand, um, you pick those out. Bam, bam, bam. Maybe Odessa, um, and. I mean, it's, it's well, kind of horrible. They want Odessa. They don't want to lose Odessa, but they you know, pick up uh, leave, perhaps. Perhaps. Well, they're not going to. They're not going to get Ukraine at the. You know, once if they're using nukes, it's really just it's a stay. It's a warning. It's a totem. Stay away from Russia. Stay away from internal politics. Exceedingly dangerous move. God knows what happens, right? I think you certainly go over the uh, maximum acceptable atrocity level. NATO clearly declares war. Then what happens, right? That's good. I'm glad I I live deep in the mountains of Virginia and and still have a couple of years worth of food supply and fuel supply uh, in stock because it could go all the way. Yeah, uh, that's that's the problem with the way that we escalated. I mean, we had this global network that uh, you know sprung into being in response to this invasion, and uh, it succeeded. It includes leaders from all the West, from leaders of corporations, uh, individuals, all joined in this kind of open source network that's a disconnecting Russia, and that it escalated right up to a, a global level. It made it an existential conflict for Russia. Russia's already in a war for, for survival. So uh, a war for survival with nuclear weapons means that the decision-making that goes on in Ukraine is completely different than, than it would be otherwise. Um, if it was just a regional conflict, it's not a war for survival for Russia. It's only a, oh, a war for survival for, for Putin, not for Russia, just for Putin. Ukraine's not going to attack Russia. It's a fucking ridiculous big lie uh, that Putin tells. There's no fucking way uh, Ukraine's going to attack Russia. It's not, Russia's not in any uh, existential risk. Uh, it's only the regime that's at existential risk. We have to be clear about that distinction. Well, that's what we're trying to sell. But the thing is, from the Russian perspective, uh, if you if the only way out of this is is you have to change your government, and you have to disarm, potentially get rid of all your nuclear weapons, uh, and that's the only way we're going to cut do a peace deal with you, or reconnect you to the West. Uh, that's uh, existential from my perspective. I mean, it's like somebody coming to say, okay, you got to get rid of your democracy in the United States, uh, get rid of your your president, and you have to disarm in order to that considered. By us, existential. So, yeah, uh, yeah. If, if we pushed it that far, but that, there's a settlement long short of that, right? Uh, the settlement I proposed, uh, they they should point me to be the head negotiator, uh, be the mediator, is that uh, Russia keeps Crimea, uh, the Donbas provinces stay in Ukraine, but are granted uh, very substantial autonomy, uh, and Russia withdraws. Uh, oh, and, and uh, Ukraine agrees not to join NATO for 15 or 20 years. Uh, that ought to be a deal that should work for both sides in the current state. But that, see, the thing is, there's there's two different layers here. There's what goes on with the Ukrainian deal, and then there's the disconnection of Russia. 
Yeah, then you uh, and you re, and you you basically dial back all the extreme shit like Swift and uh, oil embargoes and things like that. And you keep in place some uh, uh, you know the tw- the twenty fourteen uh, list of uh, sanctions, maybe a bit more. But yeah, yeah, the the existential ones you ha- that has to be part of the settlement that we put you back on Swift. We'll start buying your oil again, etc. So yeah, currently we've got the things dialed all the way up, and we can dial them way back and still keep some uh, punitive pressure on. I don't think that those sanctions are coming off. I don't think. I think the 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 general sentiment in the West right now is that R- Putin's a war criminal. Russia is 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 should be uh, neutered. Uh, it's too much of a threat to the West, uh, and that this war, at least on the global sanctions level and and disconnection, I mean, it's more than just the government sanctions. I mean, we're talking you know banks, companies of all types. I mean, every single. Thing that connects to Russia has been when cut off. It's been amazing, actually. It's been amazing. Oh, yeah. But yeah. that's scary. See, the thing is, that was a network operating. That's an open source network. And we don't have control over that. That's very cool. I mean, in fact, uh, one of the good things about this is, again, I've hypothesized online, is that maybe, maybe, maybe the world has found the solution to collective security that we've been trying to find since 1914. Uh, we, we, we found it in a a uh, scary way with mutual assured destruction during the height of the Cold War. But all the other attempts at collective security have been too easy to veto, not effective enough, too expensive, et cetera. But maybe this open source network is finally strong enough. And while it may not stop Putin, it makes an object example of them. So anybody else, we're talking about you, Mr. China, uh, realizes that the consequences of engaging in Nuremberg war crime trial right. attack across borders uh, ain't, ain't going to happen no more because if there's a consensus against you, uh, we can fuck you up in this networked world. And the beautiful thing about that, no hegemon, there's no room for hegemon here. If the U.S. put on uh, sanctions like this, it would have relatively little effect. You have to have a consensus of most of the economies of the world uh, to make such a network disconnect effective. So it uh, requires a consensus not a hegemon, uh, doesn't require killing anybody, can be put on very quickly, can be taken off very quickly. Uh, so we may have actually accidentally discovered a network mechanism for collective security that the world's been looking for since 1918. Oh, yeah. I mean, this kind of uh, open source network, this swarm that has maximalist goals that disconnects the the uh, damage that it sees. And that um, the problem is, is that the old method of peace, nuclear umbrella that sits over everybody, uh, that stops these you know major conventional wars from from breaking out, is still there, and that you know it maximalist goals on the on the disconnection running into somebody Oops. who has an ability to, to to wipe you out, right? Wipe all of us out. So um, six thousand nukes is not, nothing to kind of disregard, and. If that's your only source of power, only way back, uh, only way to survive, that's the kind of that's the kind of clash in the transition point that causes could could end up everything unraveling. It could happen. Uh, no, though I do say there, we'll see. If if the yes, I agree with you. If the West is not willing to ratchet back the existential aspects of the sanctions, then that increases the probability of. Uh, 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 Putin lashing out in the way like you described. But as part of a general settlement, uh, if I were Putin, I would certainly insist on, uh, you know, the the most extreme parts of the sanctions have to be thrown in, uh, too, as part of the settlement. Well, West, the West isn't at the negotiating table with, with Putin. It's Putin and Ukraine directly. But 
They could, it could it could be pulled in at any time. You know, Putin could say, "All right, I'll do this, but only if they do that." And then you got to send uh, Blinken over and uh, and work it out. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah. they might not. You know, as you point out, the West's blood is up. You know, this reminds me. Uh, I read uh, the UK newspapers, particularly the Telegraph, every day to get a sense, and their blood's up way higher than ours. Right? This is starting to remind me of July 1914, uh, where it may be maybe difficult to get the uh, populace to back down, even if the right, if it, even if it is the right thing to do. Yeah. So the problem with this network is it has a pattern of thinking that everyone seems to adopt and that the Western leadership, for the most part, and it, it, at every level of government has has converted their mindset and they're towards this pattern and they can't break out of it. So this it's all maximalist goals. It's all about, you know, the leaders are, are competing to see who can ratchet it up more. I mean, Johnson is like every day trying to come up with a new new way of increasing the pressure increasing the kind of existential pressure on, on Russia. Um, and uh, anyone who actually says anything like that's rational, let's say, wait a second, let's think about this. Let's think, let's think this through is immediately jumped on. It's like, you don't want to, you don't want to be that politician. You don't want to be that leader. Um, and uh, yeah, no, th- this is a, yeah, these, these sanctions and this disconnection and this ratcheting up a pressure on Russia is not going away even after this conflict. I'm not sure about that. I'm going to fact I'm going to challenge the world's leaders. Those of you listening to the Jim Rudd show, I know at least a couple of them do. <laughs> uh, uh, realize that this network form of collective security is now new. Uh, it's powerful, but for it to actually be effective, you have to be able to modulate it. You have to be able to turn it back. So world leaders think about how you're going to modulate these existential network attacks uh, should, once you get Russia to bend the knee and, uh, and reach a tolerable compromise because yes, some wars are fought to the bitter end, but not very many. Most of them, one side or the other realizes that uh, time to bend the knee and the other side says not worth f- fighting to the end and a negotiated settlement uh, comes uh, comes about. But in this case, it has to include uh, the uh, worldwide network, uh, the, the aroused network effect, which is uh, a new thing under the sun and actually a possibly very hopeful thing for humanity if we can get through this crisis. Crisis. It may be a way for us to uh, finally achieve collective security at a tolerable price. Yeah, I mean, I, I view it as a network decision-making system, and this is one aspect of that. And we have to figure out a way to mitigate the the excess of it and 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 control it to a certain extent. I mean, we figured out how to do that with bureaucracy. We figured out how to do that with with uh, uh, markets. You know, it took a while. And we do it with we did it with the Cold War, right? You know, we'd raise the DEFCON level a level. We put the B fifty twos back in the air, but then when the crisis was over, DEFCON comes back down one. Uh, B fifty twos stop patrolling so aggressively, right? So there was right. there was ways to modulate, and if we're going to use network war, we have to have ways to modulate it up and down. Yeah, I don't think these guys actually think that you know the leaders of the West tend to think that they were just great at their job and that they didn't see any kind of larger dynamic or or or, or system actually doing 90% of the work on the disconnection forum. They think, oh yeah, look look what I did. I'm such a great leader. Um, but no, they're just part of it. They're just one cog in it. Yeah. And it's amazing. I will say I've been surprised at how uh, strong the network effect has been with respect to businesses, right? All the businesses under no legal obligation to do so, pulling back very rapidly and very decisively. Uh, and again, due to the uh, you know popular opinion, essentially, the 
the, the raw network itself, which is quite interesting and something for us all to ponder. Uh, before we ponder, though, that'll be my last question. What are the future implications for all this? Before we do that, uh, you've long been a person who's talked about network war as part of modern war. Well, I think one of the most amazing things is how astoundingly inept Russia has been with respect to network war, both in the physical manifestations of network wars and the uh, and the virtual. You know, when I say physical, I'm things like the electricity is still on in much of Ukraine, the internet, the uh, prime ministers of three European countries went to Kiev to meet with Zelensky by train. You know, if, uh, if it was the United States against Ukraine, there would have been no train bridges left in uh, within 200 miles of, of Kiev. You know, the Russians aren't dealing with the physical networks, and they're certainly losing the psy- the psyops big time. You know, it's, uh, we had this idea of the gigantic gorilla of uh, Russia able to manipulate the world's opinion at will, which I never believed, by the way, but a lot right. of people did. But, but they've been shown to be totally inept in both the physical and the virtual aspects of network warfare. What, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I think they I think their reputation was blown out of proportion just for political effect. Okay, you know, during during the Trump years, and that. Um, they never really were truly effective in the West. Um, their output was relatively small, relatively ham-fisted. Uh, it was, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of views over a course of a campaign season, you know, on on their disruptive campaigns uh, compared to you know four billion views a day for YouTube alone. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so it's like a- it's like a needle in a haystack. We produce more disinformation every day, every hour than than on our own to disform disinform each other. <laughs> Than, than Russia could, uh, you know, operating a full steam for a year. So um, it wasn't it wasn't possible in the West. Yeah, I could calculate the Jim the Jim Rutt show has gotten more views on social media than uh, Russian propaganda did in 2016. Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Maybe, maybe and then, for just maybe for and probably a similar effect, not much, but something, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And then compared to what the swarm, this network swarm produces, it wasn't. I mean, once this thing fully evolved to a full-on network, there wasn't any competition even possible. But where Russia did focus its efforts were uh, on, on India and, 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 and other places in the Middle East, in Africa, and that sentiment is actually relatively pro-Putin. So, um, you know, same thing with the Chinese. They focused on internal pro-Putin, pro-Russia uh, sentiment. Uh, that's been relatively effective. But what about the physical network? It seems very weird that the Russians wouldn't realize that, uh, you know, cutting the railroads, cutting electricity, cutting the Internet is relatively easy to do with precision munitions, and they haven't done it. Yeah. You know, I think in part that was an artifact from the initial um, campaign design is that they thought they were going to take it so quick. They didn't want to do extraordinary damage to the physical infrastructure and then get this, you know, do the civilian casualties and uh, suffering uh, angle. Um, and that backfired. And then um, they've been bogged down in just surviving since then. And they haven't been able to, you know, uh, expand beyond protection, you know, force protection at this point or or destroying cities that they've they've clearly surrounded and and set up for destruction. And, um, yeah, that that physical network effect. You know, we, we talked about the three things that were new on this in this war It was like, OK, drones. PGMs, smart weapons, basically, really coming to the fore. And the second one was this network springing up to kind of disconnect damage at a global level in warfare. And then the the third thing was, uh, you know, the 
the super empowerment that access to these networks provides and uh, the inability of if you don't sever those connections, uh, you're super empowering lots of small groups. It's like, for instance, with the the drones that the one of the most effective drone units in, in, in Ukraine is leveraging Starlink. Right. And so, the, you know, they have access to this global satellite system and, um, the, you know, turning it into a kind of a military system. And that kind of offers them incredible power, turns their, you know, podunk little drone systems into something that has, you know, the ability to uh, gather information and, and, and act on it faster than the Russians can. Um, so uh, those network connections, those super empower, empowerment linkages um, to global supply chains also that provide technology, to, to active in networks that provide services and communication, um, that's new. That's, that's changing this war. Yeah, so all, all these new things, let's wrap up. We'll exit on this one. What are the future implications uh, from what we have learned from this uh, situation? Assuming we survive, of course, if, you know, goes nuclear, you know, major strategic exchange, uh, you know, game over. But assuming it doesn't, what do we learn from all this? Yeah, so if we're lucky and uh, this doesn't end up in a, in a nuclear stalemate and, or is that we're going to have to figure out a way to get our arms around this 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 network effect, this network swarm, this open source thing that uh, operates at a global level. Um, it's great at mobilizing. It's great at uh, achieving a, a, a specific goal, um, but it's also dangerous, and um, because it, it's all always maximalist. So we're going to have to figure out how to how that hap- you know how that works. And you know, that's the forefront of my thinking is, you know, how do you get our, get your arms around that? How do, yeah, how do you modulate this amazing mobilized network? If we can learn to modulate it, like we learned to modulate nuclear weapons threats, uh, this thing will be great for humanity. But if we don't, it'll be a really dangerous weapon. Uh, the other one, I would, some of the ones I'd point out is that, um, you know, the power of hedgehog strategies with uh, smart weapons uh, you know, presents us with some opportunities to make, for instance, the bulk the Balkan states who seem very, very uh, vulnerable, uh, you know, surprisingly expensive to take. So, you know, you put thirty thousand uh, javelins and ten thousand uh, what are the air, stingers into each one of the Balkans. Uh, suddenly, even their relatively small populations would turn out to be an extremely hard nut for Russia to crack. Uh, especially showing how inept they actually are with respect to doing you know, land air type uh, maneuver warfare. Uh, so we can at relatively low cost harden up an awful lot of these uh, uh, peripheral allies, which would, which uh, I think would be uh, uh, quite a good thing. And of course we should think about how we use this network and, you know, and position it for other adversaries, right? Uh, it, it's uh, one, of the, one of the biggest questions, of course, is what is Taiwan, uh, the Taiwan-Chinese situation. Uh, I have a bet with Sam Oberia, uh, who uh, said, if Russia wins a decisive victory in Ukraine, which they won't, he predicted China would uh, take Taiwan within three years. I said, no, they won't. It's much harder uh, to take Taiwan than it is to crush uh, Ukraine. And the Chinese don't need to. They're on the ascendancy. Why would they? Russia has reached its peak power relative to Ukraine right now, and its power will go down every year. Uh, so it has to attack now or never, essentially. Uh, but, you know, thinking about this network and how powerful it was, uh, how would we modulate it to use uh, against the Chinese or, frankly, them use against us? So thinking about what are the strategic implications 
of global, instant-on, pervasive uh, network warfare in other contexts. Yeah, no, I think I think the network is fickle, and that that Biden trying to go maximalist with China is not going to work. I mean, he can't just turn on this network disconnection with China based on their supply of Russia, um, and that. Um, so you know, it's hard to lead, hard to, to ignite. It's not something you just can. There's no on switch, right? Right. It's not an obvious thing. There's like a mechanism, and I, I tried to dig into that in my reports. It's and the the second thing is we're going to see rapid, rapid, rapid uh, improvements in, in in drone tech. It's going to be torrential. But using drones offensively, uh, creating you know more autonomous weapons, um, and, and deploying them in mass in, in massive swarms. Uh, that can, you know, lead to complete change in the way we defend. Uh, you know, if we had gone into the Ukraine and we had kind of a, a autonomous air defense system with drones that we could give them, that could have set that could have changed the the war overnight, right? It's not us flying them; it's it's the Ukrainians deploying them, right? Any kid with a joystick could fly these things, right? And then get them close and just say autonomous mode, go kill, right? Or yeah, or everything's autonomous. It really does. Flying is is much easier to do. A, you know, have an autonomous weapon than on the ground. Oh yeah, three D. I mean, I I was a student pilot. I've flown, and you realize hey, it's hard to hit shit in the air. I mean, as in run into something, right? Well, in uh, cars, you're you know eighteen inches from disaster at all times. Right? Well, think of it. Think of the best way to defend physically uh, in a country that's invaded by a conventional force is this pop up air to ground, air to air system virtually all autonomous that we just send them. And we're not even in the conflict. We just give these, these packages and trailers and they just pop them out and it just goes. And any plane that enters, dead. Any tank that comes across, dead. Oh, by the way, we flooded the world with the software for free for people, a simulator, so that uh, kids everywhere learn to play these weapons with the actual software on a simulator. And so then we send them the, uh, you know, a couple of C-130s worth, and suddenly uh, every 14-year-old uh, is sitting there taking the enemy out. But with respect to uh, drone warfare, I mean, uh, somebody in Russia wasn't paying any attention. You know, the Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict was, uh, you know, that was a big eye-opener, right? The uh, uh, right. the Azeris, you know, kicked the shit out of the Armenians uh, using, you know, just swarms of drones. Uh, it, it was uh, quite impressive, actually. And this is, this is a place where China really has an advantage. I mean, they produce the majority of drones in the world. So um, uh, getting them up to autonomous or semi-autonomous and and producing them in bulk you know it's a it's a that's going to be a, a game changer it's also you know when we were talking about russia not having like for instance the chinese dominance in production is is really not fully accounted in this kind of scenario is that uh, we were talking about not western oil companies not extending technology to russian oil production and that would cause a breakdown but Underneath it all is the Chinese actually producing all of the big refiner equipment, everything else. It's all been done in China now. So, you know, if in effect, China can supply that without having the West as a as a as a as a uh, toll taker on the or controlling uh, interest in, in, in what's going on. So uh, same thing with drones. You know, we're going to see some serious advances in drones from China. And, but from everybody else, I mean, drone tech is not hard. Israelis have some very impressive 
drones, right? They, yeah, but I'm I'm talking I'm talking mass. I'm talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Oh yeah, yeah I, I agree. But it's not that hard. I mean, you think of what the U.S. did during World War II, right? We started cranking out all those uh, Liberty ships and uh, and uh, Sherman tanks and shit. Uh, you know, we should be setting up U.S. based. Uh, cruise missile and drone factories. And I like even better your idea of an integrated system uh, with all the software, all the weaponry in place. You just ship it and deploy it. Anybody can do it. Uh, So anyway, John, this has been a wonderful conversation. Any final thoughts or should we just wrap it here? Oh, I hope we survive. (laughs) You know, hey, I hope we're on the right timeline here. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder. In this branch of the metaverse, right? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) All right, thanks, John. I'm I'm sure you'll be back on soon. Have a good day. You too, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.